Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schmaltz. And I want to help you. I want to give you some tools today to help you understand your word. And, and uh, maybe we'll go into a season uh, where we can do this throughout the summer and just giving you some tools where you can really, really dig in. Because we know that the word of God is a gift to us. And we learned last week that um, we know that's never going to fail. It will never return void. What God has spoken will come to pass. And for those who put their hope in God's word will experience the fruit and the power of it. And so today, I want to give you kind of an overview, and I want to press into some things. And and if you don't have some notes, you can grab them. Um, Hold on to your hat. I'm going to have to go through this fairly quickly because I I got a little uh, ambitious this week on... uh, on stuff, because I really love the word, and man, I love digging in, and I just said, Lord, what am I doing? But I want to talk to you about, and ask you this question, really. Do you live in the Old Testament or in the New? Where do you live? And you'll understand what I mean by that here as we get into it. See, we must understand that one clarifies the other. The Old Testament gives way to the New Testament when it comes to what we call orthopraxy, or the practice of our Christian faith, okay? Okay? how we walk this thing out, how we approach the throne of God is all determined, it's made clear in the New Testament. And yet I find that a lot of Christians are tempted, as they were in the very earliest of times, to go and find their walk of faith in the Old Testament. And see, we gotta understand the purposes of each so that we know how to approach it. And I'm gonna explain that the best I can today. Um, matter of fact, it's going to be tough to do in the time that we have, but you just hang in there. Secondly, we must embrace the New Testament theology of faith and grace. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6. I'm going to read this. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, we all share in that heavenly calling, amen? We're all going to heaven. Aren't you glad about that? He says here, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Boy, that would help us in a lot of things, wouldn't it? Who we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses. The writer of Hebrews is helping those who lived in the Old Testament to begin to live in the New Testament. saying, you put your hope in Moses and the covenant of works, now let me introduce you to Jesus, who is the, uh, is the leader, is the, 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 uh, the one who is bringing forth the covenant of grace, the new covenant, the New Testament. He's been found worthy of a greater honor, just as the builder of a house has greater than the, uh, honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. What he's saying is, Moses was faithful. He brought forth the promises as God called him to bring it forth. And now he's saying there's a new house. There's a new plan. He said, And Jesus is it. 
And we are that house. Jesus is the builder, and he's been found faithful. He's making that transition for them. He says, if we hold firmly to it, Christ brings us into a whole new future. See, there is some confusion among Christians today as to how to interpret the Bible. And I see this in different places. As Christians, we believe that the whole Old Testament and the New Testament are our text for life and faith. Amen? The Old Testament is divided up into the law and the prophets, has narratives, stories of the people of God, the poetry, and the wise sayings. The law and the prophets pointed to the coming Messiah, who we now know is to be, it is Jesus Christ. See, the narratives and the poetry and the wise sayings continue to illustrate that truth and the ways of God for us. So we can go, the Old Testament is rich, it's full of expanding on the concept with Jesus. See, once you go back and you take Jesus, your understanding and the fulfillment of God's promise back into the Old Testament, it just comes alive. It's like, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was prophesying about. That's what David was, was hinting and seeing through a, a veil. He could barely see it, and he knew it was coming. But now that we know who, who the Son is, there in Psalm uh, uh, 1, now we know it's a powerful truth. It unlocks. Jesus is the key. And we take the key, and we can open the Old Testament, and it comes alive for us. See, the key to understanding the Old Testament is embracing the New Testament. The New Testament holds the key to unlock the mysteries. So if one approaches the Old Testament without Christ, you're going to end up with in many different places. Truthfully, you'll end up with the Old Covenant, which is a covenant of works. And that would be going backward for Christians. Without the New Testament writings of the Gospels, which include the teachings of Jesus and the epistles, which include the teachings of Peter, Paul, James, and John, then we would be lost as to where we stand in reference to the Old Testament law. Paul sat down and he explained it. He helped us understand. So we need to spend, and I tell people, I say, look, you probably should, should spend about twice as much time in the New Testament as you do the Old so that your mind can be illumined. But I find today that even whole denominations spend most of their time in the Old Testament. And as a result, they, they get what the Old Testament was trying to provide. What you're going to find today led to nowhere. Okay, so hold on. See, the Old Testament does help us understand the ways of God. It illustrates the power of God's wisdom and plan as he moved throughout time, working toward who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So I'm saying here, be careful, because reading the Old Testament without the new can draw one into a sense of deep guilt and spiritual pride that one can, that, that one, that the pride is that we can obtain a rest without grace that we can come to a place of satisfaction, that we can come to a place of fulfillment without Christ by doing it on our own. Now, you've heard me speak of this before. They call it legalism. And it's, a, it's all based on a works theology. Paul deals with this tendency in his writings to the Colossians and the Galatians. What happened was the church, which in the beginning was made up with primarily Jews, began to lean back toward their old covenant. They began to go back to the works, and Paul said, no, 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 wait a minute, stop. Don't do that. This thing has all been turned on its head. It's, 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 it's over. 
what you have been looking for has been fulfilled. So there's no going back trying to earn your favor from God. There's, there's no more sacrifice needed. No cows, bulls, doves, none of that. No scapegoat. No yearly atonement. That has all been done. So Paul is lovingly and at times even rebuking the church to say, why are you trying to use works to obtain what you've already received with grace? Let me illustrate that just for a moment. When you came to Jesus Christ, you probably didn't have to show up with a bull. Okay? When you got saved, you didn't have to show up with a bull and say, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice this bull today so that I can be saved. You didn't do that. You came to a Jesus who had already given his life for you and for me, who had paid the price fully for all mankind. And all you had to say was, Jesus, I receive you. I receive your sacrifice. I receive what you did on the cross for me. Instantaneously brought into the family of God. Instantaneously brought from darkness into light. And here's the point. That is exactly the way he continues to do it in your life. Through grace. Through his powerful working in you. See, we see this all going on. This struggle in the heavenlies is continuing to go on. And it's really, it's very satanic. Because Satan wants to bring us back to that old covenant, which you'd say, wow, how can you mention those at the same time? Because that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. Again, he, if he can keep us from Jesus any way possible, then he's fulfilling what he's trying to do, the deception. So if, if he can, and so Paul recognized that when he saw it in the Colossians and, 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 and the churches in Colossae and in, in the Galatian, the, uh, Galatian uh, area. He was rebuking them and saying, look, don't go backwards. Don't try to obtain in works what you've already retained, retained in faith. Your walk in Christ is now going to be based on that very same faith. Okay, so you following me on that? So I don't have to preach that anymore? Okay. So he deals with it. The early Christians were tempted to try to go back to a works mentality as many do to this day. So what I want to do is I want to take the heart of the law. I mean, I want to go right into the middle of it and jump in it. And we all know it as the the Ten Commandments. And how do the Ten Commandments apply to the church today? Now this this is, you know, yeah, I know this is aggressive. This is bold, right, Dr. Brian? This is getting in a date. But I think this is going to help you. So let's look at the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20. How do we interpret the Ten Commandments through a New Testament modus operandi? How do we look at that and interpret it today? Because I think there's some confusion out there. Because when we look at the Ten Commandments, now, the Ten Commandments are very, very powerful. Again, the heart of the law. And, and it's sad because it is being pulled, as we know, it's being pulled out of schools, it's being pulled out of, out of um, um, courthouses, it's being pulled out because people don't want to see that. And of course, we know, you know the enemy's behind that. Jesus said, as I mentioned last week, that he came to do what? He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's jump in here. So it starts off here. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is a personal uh, note, isn't it? Because he's talking to the Israelites and he brought them up out of Egypt, Egypt where they had been in slavery and bondage for hundreds of years. And now they're being brought forth. 
said, I, he said, I'm the one who did that. Out of the land of slavery. And then he hits him with the first truth. You shall have no other gods before me. Now let's, let's look at that. Let's clarify what's going on here. First of all, in reference to the gods, he's making a reference to the gods of the nations that surrounded that are going to be surrounding them and of the gods, the two primarily, that they were exposed to for hundreds of years there in Egypt. And so what God wanted to show them is, look, the, the, you know, the gig is up. We're going back to Abraham. We're going back to clarify who I am. And so I'm, if you're going to move forward with me, we've got to make it certain right now that you understand there's only one God, and I'm him. And you've got to flush any other concept of God's right now. So that meant leaving their idols behind. That meant leaving everything that they had been kind of syncretistically drawn into over hundreds of years. And you bet they were. But God was now calling them as a people to purify their understanding of who God was, the first step in that direction. God said, no more. He said their God was going to be one who could not be touched or seen. And we know that in, in time, it, it, over the course of what was going on, is they feared even his, saying his name or hearing his voice. And it, we know that right out of the box, they broke this law by making the golden calf. You know the story. But he starts off that. So in the Old Testament, we understand that God is saying, look, there is one God and I am him. Have no other gods before me. How do we respond to that in the New Testament? Very clearly. See, he says there's only one God. We now know that Jesus is God. We have shifted. God set us up and said there is one God, and he brought us forward as a people on the earth to now say, look, he can't be touched. He can't be, you can't hear his voice. You can't approach him. But now you can. Because all this time, I was saving my son. I was leaving him behind a veil that you could not approach, you could not see. You would, you, you would die if you even touched the mountain. But now we have the image of God. Now we have it. Because he's going to go on to say, no, make no graven images. But see, this kind of sets that up. He is the image. Look at Hebrews 1, 3, if you don't believe me. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Why would he use that language? Because they understood that's going back to the mountain. Because when he went to the mountain, it was glowing. Remember Mount Sinai? It says that they couldn't even look at the glory. They said, no man, we don't want to even look at him. He says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Any question on Jesus being God? Wiped away right here. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Who else could sit down beside God than God himself? The Son. The Son of God. Now becoming more clear. Now an understanding of what we as Christians should now know. So look, how do we respond to this first command? You'll have no other gods before me. This is how we respond. We will have nothing before Jesus Christ. He is our God. He alone is God. Do you understand how taking the New Testament now unlocks the secret wisdom of God and what God was trying to prepare right there? Going on, 
He, shall, he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, just to get it all covered. Because, yes, there were, there were fish gods, and they made anything they saw, they would, there was a graven image. They felt like there was a God behind it. We all know this. We learned it in high school. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the, for their, the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commandments. Wow, that's cool right there. Talks about generational curses and then generational blessings. In the Old Testament, the way they interpreted it was that they understood that there were graven images. God said, no more. You can't bring those with you. Dump them. Can't have them. A lot of these were good luck charms used for sorcery. Again, Israel continues to stumble with this over generations. They keep kind of coming back to that, that they feel like God is not answering them quick enough, that God, and, and you've got to follow this because there is a, a modern-day interpretation of all this, is that they would, they would continue to say, well, gosh, man, Jehovah, Yahweh is not speaking. I'm not, I'm not getting clarification here. Hmm, perhaps we can pull out the God of the Egyptians. Maybe Ra has something to say about this. Maybe Ashtaroth has something to say about this. Of course, a direct violation of what God is trying to tell them. He said, look, all they are is a piece of wood and, and, and molten gold. They're nothing. They worshiped other gods when they felt that Jehovah had abandoned them which made it all much worse, of course. How do we respond to this teaching? How do we, how do we respond to that particular command when we take it in the light of the New Testament? Folks, we know that idolatry is not just about images anymore, which is interesting because you don't see that unless you go to tribal cultures and whatnot. But those things that take our worship and focus from God are now the modern-day idolatry. So how do we respond to, you'll have no other images before me? In a New Testament sense, folks, Jesus is up the ante. He says, I've now given you an image. You can now use your imagination and see a man. And however you want to imagine him. We know he's Jewish. We know, I mean, so there he is. We don't have to have a graven image. We don't have to do anything other than to see that the Son of God came to the earth and we don't have to put anything. Now, I'm not saying you, you need to have an image carved of Jesus and put it in your house or, or put him on the cross. Matter of fact, I think that is a violation of, of, of exactly what he's after here. But he's saying, look, through the Spirit, you have an image. Through the Spirit, you can now connect with him and you can come boldly before his throne of grace and you can identify with Jesus Christ as, as, all, as completely human and as completely God. And through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, you can actually talk to him and he'll actually talk back. And that's cool right there. Because in the Old Testament, don't even dare talking to him. You know, yeah, I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to get this straight right now. Yeah, well, you knock yourself out. You go to that mountain, you're going to be dust. That's all that's going to be left of you. But now we can come to the bold, we can come to the throne of grace by the Spirit. We can speak to Jesus, have no fear, because he died on the cross for us. He loves us. He showed no, great, no greater love does a man show than to lay down his life. So we know he loves us. 
See, what we find out is this wonderful hinge in Scripture that you're going to find all throughout the New Testament. And that is that Jesus said, it's all about the heart. Legalism and the Old Testament focused on outward appearance and compliance. Doing what you're told. The New Testament is all about what's going on on the inside. It's going beyond the external. Not to say that the external is not important, because it is. But he says, look, don't just go through the motions, but this whole walk that you're, you, this whole walk with God has to come, it has to spring out of a reality. It has to spring out of genuineness. It has to spring out of true faith and hope and trust and relationship. And none of this compliance mess, none of this, well, I'm just going to go, see, if we applied this to modern day, if you're going to church, if you're, and, and see, and that's a whole other thing that's being exploded right now, the whole concept, we'll get into that even deeper here in a moment, is, is that, you know, so many Christians I see living their lives with just knocking out the, the have-tos. And there's a sense of absolution that takes place. If Paul were here, he'd be rebuking us for that. He'd say, what are you doing? Why are you basing your faith on compliance by just going to church Sunday in and out and feeling any sense of fulfillment in that? Because that's not what Jesus died for you to have. Not at all. Jesus, once again, just said, look, I'm going on the inside here. And if you base your faith on the have-tos, you're missing the whole wonderful part of what Jesus died on the cross for you to have. Okay? The concept of generational sin that is mentioned here is brought right into play here. And many ask, you know, people ask me about that because they talk about the curse and they'll say, well, didn't Jesus die on the cross to wipe away the curse and we no longer have effect on the curse? That's exactly right. That's true where you apply it. Where you apply it. How does the, the, the Old Testament command regarding generational sins and, and the judgment on sin uh, uh, affect us today? Folks, this is universal. It's still in operation. You don't have to go 10 yards out this door to see it going. Absolutely. The curse continues on for those who do not put their hope in Jesus Christ. There's a maelstrom. There's a storm. There, and, and it swirls around this earth. And the kingdom of God is here. There is no doubt, as I explained last week. But right now, only those who come under the covering of the kingdom of God, only those who are operating under the new laws of the kingdom of God will have those curses broken over their life. But if you continue to live out there in legalism and you continue to live out there in this religious kind of faith and you're living in the Old Testament in your approach to God, oh, I don't think you want what that holds as far as generational sin. Think of what your grandfather did. And your great-grandfather, what did they do? Before, because people without Jesus Christ, that's over you, man. That's going to try to light on your life. And if it doesn't come out through your life, it will come out in your children's life. But man, when you come under grace, and you come under Jesus Christ, it says that he was, when he was hung on the cross, it said he, he embarrassed, he publicly humiliated the demons of hell who were all standing there, you know, with, with you know, 
their, their pitchforks in the spirit, you know, and, and waiting and laughing that they'd killed the son of God, the progeny of God. And God is just saying, man, you have no clue what's getting ready to happen, do you? Because when it happened and he rose from the dead, they're all like, crud. What just happened here? We just got ripped off. Because their power was made null in effect for those who put their hope in him. And that curse is broken. It's almost like it dissipates. So that the sin that is trying to light upon me to the third and fourth generation, as I'm walking in the grace of God, it is just dissolved. It's, none, it's null. Done. For those who put their hope in Christ. Now, if you want to keep living in that Old Testament, well, then you're going to have to fight it out with those curses and do your best. I don't recommend it, by the way. And, you know, I, I say, can we be affected by the sins of our forefathers? Absolutely. I have 30 years of ministry proof. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Once again, Jesus makes a transfer, and Paul sees it. He says, idolatry is not about having graven images in your house anymore. It's about having anything that's more important than Jesus Christ in your life. Catch that. That is idolatry. For Christians to think that idolatry can't touch their lives anymore, you're being very silly and foolish. Because Paul puts it right smack, and he says, look, if you want to get out from under the power of idolatry, you got to, you got to deal with the sexual immorality thing. And is this not one of the bowls of the book of Revelation being poured out on the world right now? I mean, we talked about that last week. Man, it is all in our stuff. Man, I can't even turn the TV on more, anymore. We can't even open a magazine anymore. Or some of this crud is being forced down our throats. It's time to stand, believers. And there's one way that you can stand, and that is put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, don't give in to that sexual immorality. Don't try to, uh, to embrace it. Don't take it into your home. The impurity, the lust, the evil desires, and greed. All right? Don't get buy into any of that because that's how Christians respond to that as, a ten, as part of the Ten Commandments. He goes on. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In the Old Testament, there was a real danger of being severely cursed for misusing the, the, the God's name. Let's look at Balaam, in, for instance. Balaam, in the scripture, was, was hired to try to curse the people of God in the name of their God. He knew it could be done. Didn't work out so well for Balaam. In the New Testament... This now includes, of course, the name of Jesus. God's name is used in cursing every single day. People don't realize that God will not hold them guiltless, as it says here. In other words, it is a sin like any other sin, and sin is bad, right? I mean, Paul said that. He said, look, yeah, we've been freed from sin, Romans chapter 6. He says, but don't you know that you died to sin? Don't you know that it was sin that killed you? And it will continue to work death in your life if you embrace it? You're now in grace, of course, but it's time for you to begin learning and growing and being sanctified by the, the unction and the work, the, the, the patient love and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But don't just say, well, sin's okay now. I mean, that's, that's wrong. That's um, an in, a, a misunderstanding of the New Testament. So when it comes to cursing, we know, of course, 
that, um, so as far as interpreting that particular command in the New Testament, from a New Testament point of view, you just include the name of Jesus. Okay, moving on. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, nor any foreigner residing, that must have gone to the next page, huh? Uh, former residing in your, uh, foreigners residing in your towns, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you're reading ahead, then you know what I'm talking about. But see, I think Christians misunderstand the whole Sabbath day because they don't read their Bible. They don't read the Bible. And so in the end, what we have come up with is this historically inaccurate understanding of what the Sabbath day is. When Jesus came, the Old Testament just dissolved in its former glory. It just... And it was all transferred to the man. The early church understood this. The Jews knew that the day, of the Sabbath day that they were used to worship on no longer had the kind of effect and power. Matter of fact, they knew they could no longer identify with that day, so they didn't even meet that day, Saturday. They didn't. They met the first day of the week so that they would no longer be associated with the old. You following me? So they, they chose another day, and they, and they chose the first day of week, and this is going to blow your mind. It wasn't because we need a new Sabbath day. Hmm, first day of the week? No. They did not try to reconstitute Saturday. Jordan made it. And they didn't You pick the first day of the week just randomly. They chose it because that's the day that, that Jesus rose from the dead. They chose it because that's when the Holy Spirit came. They chose it because so many things happened on the first day of the week that just thought, looks as good as day as any. But they did not treat that day like a Sabbath day. They did not take the Old Testament concept of Sabbath and place it on the first day of the week. In other words, they did not say, okay, well, we no longer can work. We can't work our animals. We can't go more than 50 steps in any direction. We can't cook or eat or clean or, or do anything with our main, main, men servants or maids. They did not treat that day that way. So why are we doing that today? And today it's preached that the first day of the week is a Sabbath. Not true. It's not biblical. Am I, am I exploding your brains? Am I blowing up your, 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 your upbringing? I'm sure I did. And you're going to say, heresy, heresy. Mm-mm. Because I'm now going to read the Bible to you. That might just help a little. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Here's the deal, just for the sake of time here. God gave them a day so that they would honor him. He gave them a day so they would stop because he knew their sinful hearts. 
He knew their compunction to build golden idols. He knew. So he said, look, I, this is how we're gonna, I'm going to help you. I want you to give one particular day, the day that I rested from all of my work, and I want you to rest, and I want you to acknowledge me as the creator of the universe, and this is what I want you to do. Guess what? They couldn't even keep that. So that when the time of Jesus came, the whole thing was so muddled, so screwed up, so messed up, Jesus was just like, you guys didn't even get what God's heart was. The whole point of the day was so that you would acknowledge him and that you would draw closer to him as a creator, not just do things just to get away with it. And that's exactly what it had become. They, they had it right down to the square footage that they could go from their house before they violated the Sabbath. It was ridiculous. It had become something that was just twisted and messed up. And, and it, 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 Jesus was just disgusted by it. What we find out by the writer of the Hebrews is, guess what? Now follow me. Every day is a Sabbath day. You mean I don't get to work? Yay, Pastor David said I don't have to work. And out the door you go, no, 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 no. Has nothing to do with physical work. It has everything to do with the internal work of trying to earn God's favor. See, even the, the Hebrews, by celebrating one day a week, would never enter God's rest. They could never approach him. They could never have a relationship with him by just honoring the day. And it proved out. It was a holy setup to bring them to the end of themselves. Folks, we now have a Sabbath rest, and it comes through the Son, Jesus Christ. If you're trying to get your Sabbath rest by celebrating one day a week, you miss the whole point altogether. You're living in the Old Testament, my friend, when you should be living in the New. There's rest. And God says, you don't have to work anymore. You don't have to obtain my favor anymore. I've given it to you. All you have to do is just walk with me and say yes, because he's fulfilled it. I love this in Hebrews chapter 10. This is the covenant I will make with them, and we should insert our name. This is a covenant I'm going to make with David Schmaltz. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in his heart. I will write them on his mind. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Folks, that's living in the New Testament. I'm just giving you an example of how when we read the New Testament and, we, and we, we go back and we interpret the old in the light of what we understand has taken place, that it unfolds a greater truth, a deeper truth. Now, because I've had so many people say, well, wait a minute, wasn't there a practical aspect of, of having a day of rest? Absolutely. So many wonderful things are residual from the law, and I can't even get into begin to talk about that, but I will talk about a day. Is it a good idea to have one day of a week to rest? Absolutely. That is what we find in the law was so amazing about God, is there was a spiritual truth and there was a practical truth. Washing your hands, nobody had any clue as to why you would do that. We know now. Man, doctor... Almost every, Dr. Brian, almost everything I read, it says, as far as health, it starts with what? Washing your hands. That came from the heart of God himself. 
So is it a good idea to have one day of rest? Absolutely. Choose your day. But please don't try to extract some kind of religious hoopla out of doing that on Saturday or, or, or even on Sunday. I know I'm blowing up a lot of religious bubbles right there, but the truth is you're called to live that Sabbath every single day. Honor your father and your mother so that you might live a long life. You might live long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. That's a powerful truth. And what I write here is that the Old Testament and New Testament, from here on out, the lines begin to blur. I call them universal truths. Because what we find is honoring your father and mother is just, it, it's, it, it, I believe that at this point, God is now saying, this is the way I created things to be. Now, I'm, I'm getting ready to, uh, let me advertise this. I plan, I don't know when, probably beginning in the fall, to do a new series that I'm so, Jamie, I'm so excited about this. I mean, God woke me up in the middle of the night and told me this is what he wanted me to do. It's called In the Beginning. I am so excited about this. And, I'm not, and it's not going to be much about creation, by the way. It's going to be about what God's original heart was. This is going to be so fun. Honor your father and mother, because this is one of those. God wants us to honor our friend. He said, look, when you honor your father and mother, this is something that I set in place. There's a blessing with it, and there's a curse with it. You curse them, you get cursed. You get blessed, even if they've been dishonorable, I'm going to bless you. My dad, two years before, well, actually several months before he died, I knew this principle. And I'm telling you, I offloaded every single little struggle I had going in my heart, even the the littlest ones. And I wrote him a tribute, and I cleaned my heart out because I wanted to make sure I was right before my dad moved on and I would no longer have a chance to be able to do that. I wrote him a tribute letter, and I said, Dad, I love you. You're a hero to me. Yes, there have been some things in the past that broke my heart, but you know what? I forgive you. I release you. You're not a perfect man. But what I did is I wanted to honor him. Was it a little, self-sac- self, uh, little selfish? You're darn right it was. One, because, I mean, I knew it would fill my dad's heart up, and, and he, he just was tearful about it. But I also knew that God, the heavens opened up over me and my children because of what the Ten Commandments says. Honor, that it might go well with you and that you'll enjoy a long life on the earth. I wonder sometimes, after all our diet and exercise, does it come down to just that? Worth a try. I mean, I, no, no, you go ahead and diet and exercise, but anyway, honor your father and mother. I don't want to go on record for saying that. Anyway, you shall not murder. I've got to finish up here. You shall not murder. Universal. Reason why? We know that uh, Cain killed Abel. Goes right back to the, in the beginning. You shall not, no, well, actually, uh, can I, I write it here that only in the New Testament, a murderous heart is sin as well. Jesus brought this home. He said, look, it's not just about murdering someone. He said, if you've got a murderous heart, that's sin too, because that's where it begins. That's where it begins. You shall not commit adultery. Look, just because on the soaps, and just because of the people that you've heard and seen and, and, and everybody celebrates, oh, yeah, they commit adultery. Oh, yeah, well, everybody does. No, you know, I mean, no, universal truth. Regardless of what our society says, adultery is sin, which will carry a certain set of circumstances that will often affect a person's entire life. You shall not steal. 
Universal truth. Thievery is sin. Just because one might think that another person didn't earn it or deserve it does not make it right to take it from them. If you look at Micah chapter 3, 7 through 9, it's a powerful teaching on robbing from God by withholding tithes and offerings. God just says, look, this is how much I'm committed to the idea of thievery that my people even take from me what belongs to me. Giving is a universal truth and sets the heart right when it comes to stealing. Stealing is what the devil does. Giving is what God does. You want to emulate? Who do you want to emulate when it comes to that, by the way? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Telling lies against your neighbor as it regards their reputation, their legal standing, their livelihood, not a good idea. I love what the proverb says. He who rolls a stone will have that stone come back upon them. You know, I tell my kids sometimes that they're, I say, oh, I wouldn't mess with that. <laughs> might be a snake underneath that. Might be, you know, it's going to roll on your foot. Little practical things. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or everything that belongs to your neighbor. The moral aspect of the Ten Commandments is upheld in the New Testament. Look at Colossians chapter 3, and we'll finish with this. So then, you have been raised with Christ. Amen? Set your hearts on things above. He didn't say here, set your lives on doing what Jesus did. He says, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, so, folks, everything you want, everything you hope for, is in who? In Christ. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in trying to earn your favor from God anymore. It's found in Him. Show up every day to talk to Him and he's going to unload all the wonderful things that he's got for you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So he's saying, we are so attached to him that whatever is now going to happen with Christ in the history of the universe, we're a part of it. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once had, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Paul turns a corner. He says, look, I'm reestablishing the moral aspect of the Old Testament. We're not moving beyond that. Those things are bad for you. You need, by the grace of God, to stop doing them. Now he goes, now he hinges into New Testament. He says, but now... You must rid yourselves of, 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 of even these things. See, these were not really mentioned in the Old Testament, by the way. Get rid of anger. Get rid of rage. Get rid of malice. In other words, a quiet trying to bring revenge on someone. Slander, using their name and telling stories about people. And filthy language from your lips. Using vile language. Not good. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Catch that. It's being renewed in what? In knowledge, in the image of its creator. 
Folks, so this is my encouragement today. This is what I want you to take away. I want you to spend some time in that New Testament, okay? I want you to read your Bibles. I want you to get in there and let the New Testament truths and a relationship with Jesus Christ begin to illuminate your heart and mind. To get in there. He says, set your mind on things above. In other words, to get where your life is. Live there. Because that's where the promises are going to be fulfilled in your life. It's not going to be trying to go through the motions. It's not going to be any kind of religious duty. It's not, you know, don't do that. Don't try to earn God's favor or try to um, even, live, even live a life that is worthy of God's blessing. I tell my kids this all the time, and I'll finish with this. You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. You don't have to earn the righteousness of God. You're, you have it. So when I go to the Old Testament, every time righteousness is mentioned, I go, that's me. That's mine. That's my blessing. It's mine because it's found in Christ, and it's mine because I'm in him. Amen? I hope you get that today because I tell you what, if you do embrace it, man, it's going to bless your socks off. Amen? Let's stand up this morning.